Hi, I'm Andy Murray. Welcome to It's a Customer's World podcast. Now more than ever, retailers and brands are accelerating their quest to be more customer-centric. But to be truly customer-centric, it requires both a shift in mindset and ways of working. Not just in marketing, but in all parts of the organization. In this podcast series, I'll be talking with practitioners, thought leaders, and scholars to hear their thoughts on what it takes to be a leader in today's customer-centric world. Many people dream of becoming an entrepreneur, owning your own business, being your own boss. Being an entrepreneur conjures up words like freedom and control. And I'd suggest, though, the real life of an entrepreneur doesn't really resemble the romantic idea many carry in their heads of what an entrepreneur's day is really like. For me, the time I spent as an entrepreneur was the most rewarding part of my career. But at the same time, it had moments that were terrifying. Terrifying because I was trying to cross an unknown sea and had no guarantees of what I'd find on the other side. The one critical component any entrepreneur needs is support from an ecosystem that understands their journey, understands the challenges, and can come alongside them with the right kind of resources. That's why I'm super excited about this episode, because I had a chance to sit down with Sarah Goforth. Sarah is the Executive Director of the Office of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the University of Arkansas's Walton College of Business. Sarah has dedicated her career to the topic of entrepreneurship and innovation. She oversees a team working with the Macmillan Innovation Studio, the Startup Village, Brewer Family Entrepreneurship Hub, and Greenhouse Incubator. I can't think of anyone more qualified to have a conversation with about entrepreneurship and innovation than Sarah. She's plugged in, switched on, and helping others shape the ecosystem being built in Northwest Arkansas. I hope you enjoy the show as much as I did. Hey, Sarah, it's great to see you today. Thank you so much for coming on board and giving us a chat about customer centricity and what's happening with innovation. Thank you so much for having me, Andy. I'm a big fan of the customer-centric initiative, admirer of your work, and just excited to sit down with you anytime. Well, you know, I just uh, found some interesting news on LinkedIn that I thought was kind of interesting in that you've gotten approval from the Board of Trustees mm -hmm. to launch a Master in Science in um, Innovation. Is that correct? It's a Master's of Science in Product Innovation. Product Innovation. Yeah. Okay. Very yeah. good. Well, tell me about that. That sounds really exciting. And how did that come about? Oh. It is really exciting, and it definitely, you know, it, if anything takes a village, it is getting uh, the launching of a new degree program inside a large research institution. I can imagine. Yeah. So this is a, a new accelerated one-year master's program that will reside in the Department of Strategy, Entrepreneurship, and Venture Innovation okay. in the Sam M. Walton College of Business. And uh, the unit I run, the Office of Entrepreneurship and Innovation, is experiential by nature. Most of the programs we operate are hands-on, team-based, mm. interdisciplinary. And from the very beginning, this master's program was intended to be a marriage between coursework um, yeah. that includes the you know the uh, expertise you need to learn to be able to develop and launch new products into yeah. the market, but also an, a practicum, an experiential element nice. that requires you to be part of a team working on something in an ambiguous space and actually do the work of launching a product or a business or an innovation inside an existing organization. And so in that way, it's pretty different than most yeah. master's programs that you'll find out there. 
Um, the practicum opportunities we have available right now include everything from launching an outdoor recreation business through an mm -hmm. incubation program to um, being paired as a business student with engineers and clinicians in a healthcare environment and wow. solving and addressing healthcare challenges. Uh, to Web3 and software innovations. Okay. So our students will have a wide range of practicum opportunities to pair with their coursework in this program, and we believe that it will equip them to um, become entrepreneurs, but also to work in innovation roles, like a product management role, for example, inside uh, an mm -hmm. existing organization or business. And um, to your question about how it came to be, yeah. it was largely informed by the needs of our region. Um, so. On the one hand, we have uh, a lot of STEM students graduating with a degree in biology or chemistry or engineering, um, maybe not wanting to go on into an academic path where they're pursuing a PhD or not wanting a full-blown MBA, mm -hmm. but wanting a skill set that's relevant in industry. And on the other hand, we have these large companies that have hundreds of innovation roles that require an ability to understand both technology and business and sort of sit in the intersection between those two domains and have a really hard time filling those jobs. These are high paying, exciting roles. And so we created this degree program to marry those two sets of needs. And we are so excited about it. Well, there's so many things to be excited about that. I mean, I get excited coming from corporate industry that you're addressing needs of what it takes to do innovation inside bigger companies. Because yeah. I found from my experience that that's a real gap. Um, we had an innovation fund in the UK. And the problem we had is we couldn't come up with the ideas that were really customer centric and yep. or we would run into roadblocks of how do you do innovation you know what does collaboration really look like you know just a lot of issues there that um, are common perhaps to entrepreneurs but are really unique in business too so really well done I'm glad you're taking that full scope thank you yeah I, I am so excited and I always say in terms of those product management roles product managers make great entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs make great product managers. So I think a side effect of this program, if we're successful, will be it will be an engine for startups um, in our region because we will retain that talent pool here. And they may start off working inside a big company and spin out something on the side or leave and start a startup at some point. But it is that skill set, as you said, of being very in touch with customers, comfortable with ambiguity, fluency across different domains, um, and an ability to try something new. Well, many senior leaders that at least I've worked with um, may not be that familiar with the word product management, and what comes to mind is project management. And totally different thing. <laughs> totally, you probably get this question a lot. So what's the difference in your mind? Because I know it's huge, but for, to enlighten us. Yeah, I appreciate you asking that because I call this the curse of knowledge. When you really understand something or you're excited about it, you forget that other people aren't there yet. Yeah. Uh, a, they may not know what it means, and B, product management is the most boring sounding title <laughs> for does. I really believe it is one of the best jobs out yeah. there. Um, and you know, as an industry, it emerged in response to the, I think, the quickening pace of change uh, created by mm -hmm. technology, created by the digital life that all products have now. And it no longer worked for large organizations to create, and this is, I'm th talking yeah. 20 years ago or so, to create a roadmap, a five-year roadmap that outlined all of the activities for yeah. um, how they would meet the needs of their customers over the next five years and 
create that strategy from the top and then roll it out through senior management and then through middle management and then to the people on the ground, as you say, to execute it um, and then do it perfectly. That, that way of working just, you know, it was failing. And so product management is, if anything, it is a culture of constant iteration that has the customer, and even the word customer is the wrong word, it's yeah. the person, that has the person who needs what you're creating, who has a problem that you're solving, who has, um, you know, whose life or whose industry has been disrupted and their frantic for a solution is having that person at the heart of everything that you do. Um, and you're in touch with them along the way and their changing needs inform your changing process and you have to be comfortable with the roadmap that you create in the beginning always being an active iteration so it requires like a really creative mm. curious person who's also a leader and doesn't need that sort of top-down management style and most of the people i'm around the students the, the artists the change makers they're driven by the problem they're solving and not by you know marching orders that somebody's given them and for that reason it's a great career path it sounds a little analogous to what maybe from my background a brand manager might have been mm -hmm. more closer Similar. to yes. that than a project manager. Agree, and I right. come from a marketing background too, and so um, you know my training is in. I was a science communicator, and I had a science communications consulting business. And what I loved to do was be in touch with an audience mm. because I wanted people to be excited about basic research and discovery and biology and climate and all the things. Um, and I was really passionate about that. So when I learned about the field of product management, as, mm -hmm. I, as I developed as a leader inside yeah. organizations, uh, it was really native to me. And I think it is native to a lot of people yeah. who are either brand managers, marketers, uh, people who've had to be in touch with an audience, people yeah. who know how to pitch. Um, and it is less native often to engineers who are more mm. comfortable with a linear roadmap for creating a product. But once they get the hang of it, it's very empowering. Well, it's interesting. You, uh, there's so many things we could talk about. The, you user experience work that goes alongside mm -hmm. that. Um, you know, for an engineer to step into a product management role, that's a totally different mindset, like you said, but sometimes we think these roles are all interchangeable, yet they do require different competencies. And what I like about how you're approaching uh, the new program for, from an educational standpoint is this, you said this word collaborative, you learn in a collaborative way. Yes. And if you don't have collaboration skills and know how to draw from an engineer or a UX designer or, you know, all the stakeholders in the right way, it's just really hard. But the fact you're teaching it this way in a collaborative environment seems quite different. Yes, and I, I personally believe that um, it's very hard for anyone to learn it any other way. Yeah. Uh, you can read about it and you can speak the language and become comfortable with the vocabulary of product management, but until you sit on a team that has the different functions, so let's say a software developer who knows everything there is about back-end code and database design and knows what, what functions are expensive to create and what are not expensive to create, um, and a person who thinks about a buyer's motivation to purchase a product, until you sit on a team where those people are in the room together and their roles are respected. And you have to negotiate whose work um, is applied to a problem. And you have to translate between sometimes different languages. Until you've actually done that, you're not actually building the muscle. You're not yeah. actually learning how to do it. And so I, you know, I would make the argument to anybody, you, you actually can't have a degree program in product management without that collaborative learning environment. 
One of the things I think stumble uh, product managers sometimes stumble on is when they have to pitch for support mm. of their idea because a lot of things haven't been done before. Mm-hmm. So at some point you're going to run into a financial person, stakeholder that's going <laughs> to say yes or no. Uh, and, and the learning how to pitch, uh, which as you know, in entrepreneurs, that's if you're going for a VC backing, you, you have to get really good at that and telling that story. Is that part of the training that they'll get or education part of it? It's the communication skills required to really tell that story and being clear about the problem you're trying to solve. Oh yes, it's, it's central. And and I, I joke with students about this all the time because this isn't really a selling point for them because pitching is awful. It's yeah. the worst. It's terrifying. <laughs> it's terrifying. <laughs> and I, you know, I joke even though I, I lead lots of pitch workshops and I am known for nudging my students to compete in competitions. And it's not about the winning. It's not about the competition. It is about developing that confidence and that yeah. skill set of being in the moment, on in the hot seat, answering difficult questions, having to communicate a technical idea to an audience of people who may have varying degrees of technical expertise. All of those things, you cannot do it by reading the book. No. You, you, it just takes practice. And so, yeah, we force them there. And often the students where I see the most growth, it is the student who um, is most comfortable reading and taking tests and, you know, getting to perfect and maybe has never been on stage or never had to present in a meeting, that's where there's the most growth at the end because we force them to do it again and again and again. But it's in a really supportive environment. That's great. And everybody has to do it, myself included. I'm up there all the time in front of them. (laughs) I joke about it. Yeah. I think what must be one of the hardest tasks is to tell your story in five minutes in a way, because you know so much about the most product managers probably have, you know, fall in love with all the features, all the things that their, you know, their their idea can yes. deliver. But then really, I can't, I have to leave this out. And that just seems really difficult to edit. Yes, yes. And I, I had this great mentor in my career. Her name's Kate Fort. And she's actually the first product owner that I ever worked with. And she was, had an technical background. She'd worked in IT mm. for a long time, and then she'd moved over to a more customer-facing role. And uh, one day, I had to go up to our leadership, our executive leadership, to pitch an idea I had. I knew it was a good idea. I mean, I was in love with this idea, and I could have written a book about the idea. And uh, I had been given five minutes at this board of directors meeting, and I went to Kate, and I said, Kate, I, there is no way I can make this pitch in five minutes. There is absolutely no... And she said, well, you're going to have to. That's the amount of time you have. And I said, I just... I don't know where to begin. And she drew two circles on her whiteboard. It was just a very basic Venn diagram with the overlap. And she said, Sarah, you know this. All you need to do is on one hand, and she wrote this inside one circle, think about what you want them to know or do. Um, What what decision do you want them to make at the end of this? Um, What do they have to do walking out? And then the other circle is, what do they need? What do they care about? What do they want to know from you to make that decision? And then Leave everything out except what's in that overlapping area. You you love, love it. That. You care about it. But leave everything out unless it is right in the heart of what they need. And that answered my question for me because in this particular context, it was pure ROI. It, they yeah. needed ROI. And I knew how to argue for that. It wasn't why I loved the idea. But that audience... Uh needed that. And so um, I went in, I showed the ROI, I talked numbers, I talked business, wasn't what I was all about. But at the end of the day, that was what convinced them to make the investment. Um, So I draw the Venn diagram everywhere I go. That is great (laughs) advice. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it's about knowing your stakeholder really well before you go in. Yeah. One of the things I know you talk quite a bit about in uh, your post on LinkedIn as I follow what you're doing is 
customer centricity and the ideas of what that means for entrepreneurship, uh, of founders. Um, but yeah, I find it's difficult sometimes to know what customers want. And what do you say, any advice to those that have um, early stage, maybe don't have a lot of funding yet? Yeah. And they, you know, how do they go get those rich? It's, it's a different story in a big company where there's lots of customer insight data, but, but for these founders that may not have access to that, are there any words of advice on how they could get close to the customer to really understand that? Yes, and uh, even if a founder had money, so let's say they had okay. friends and family backing, or they had an investor so excited about what they were doing, I would, I would say don't spend it yet. Don't mm. buy market data. What you need to do is understand the person. You need to understand the, truly understand them. And to understand them, you have to be able to empathize with them. And to be able to empathize, you have to know them. And to know them, you have to literally talk to them. <laughs> You have to meet them where they are and have a conversation. And um, this is qualitative data, but when you are working in an ambiguous market, let's say it's a new market that has opened up because there's been a global pandemic, and all of a sudden people need um, to have their meals delivered to them in a way that avoids all human contact, for example. Um, there isn't actually a lot of quantitative data to be found because their needs have just changed and no one has studied it yet. So A, quantitative da data might not be out there. B, qualitative data, um, it gets you to the human need. And there are a lot of different methodologies for how to do this, as you know. Yeah. And you know, the, in the human-centered design world, you might use a tool called an empathy map. Mm -hmm. In the lean startup world, which where I live a lot of the time working with entrepreneurs, you might use a tool called customer discovery. And these, I mean, these it's not as simple as having conversation. These are true methodologies, and it takes practice and it takes training to be efficient with your time. But at their heart, what they have in common is um, a recognition that um, people's motivations are different than numbers, um, yeah. more nuanced. And you will arrive at the truth faster with the human connections than you will looking at the numbers. That's fascinating. I see a lot of consultants in this space with um, ideas to sell around how just use unbalance in technology, paid media, social media, and just keep standing up multiple, multiple tests and let the testing kind of show you the path to glory of what the customers want. But none of that gets to the why right. and the deeper part that you're talking about. Yeah, none of it gets to the why. And if you, especially when you're in a changing environment, a fast changing environment, uh, you you won't have the right questions to do the functional test, the A-B test mm. or the yes, no, or is this better than that. Um, you may be developing the wrong product. <laughs> Um, Good point. Or you may be developing a product that has 25 features and only three of them are what really meet the imminent urgent. I think of it as the shark bite need, the pain point that keeps mm. me awake at night. Um, whereas getting out the door and talking to people, um, sometimes you can't ignore it. And I, I honestly believe that that skill set and that habit is as important for people, really sophisticated, experienced people in large companies as it is for entrepreneurs. That's really helpful and interesting. I guess you talked about big companies and entrepreneurs. Um, what do you think entrepreneurs can learn from best practices of bigger companies doing innovation and vice versa? What could some of the big corporates learn from entrepreneurs that are doing well in the innovation space? Mm -hmm. um, well, in terms of what entrepreneurs can live from, learn from big companies, there is a, um, let me think of the right way to say this, 
there is a, a discipline that comes with the need to be very efficient with your time that is trained into you working inside a structured large yeah. company. You're typically held to metrics and they might be key performance indicators or OKRs, what different companies use different ways to make sure that you're using your time well, but they're paying for your time and you often are held accountable to that. Entrepreneurs are their own boss and this is a very alluring part of entrepreneurship. Um, and they often have many ideas and many problems they're interested in solving and their time can be very scattered and this can exhaust them especially if you're pursuing five leads or five ideas at the same time and so learning the discipline of focusing on the most um, you know the most compelling market need that's aligned to what you uniquely can do or what your team even better can uniquely do being disciplined about that is something that you can look to a large company for Good advice, good structures, good frameworks. 100%. Inspiration. Um, conversely, I think large companies, they have a hard time moving quickly for all the obvious yes. reasons. And, um, you know, they get, they get entrenched in these structures, entrenched in the metrics that were relevant maybe three years ago, but maybe today requires different metrics because customer needs are changing mm -hmm. and the market needs are changing. And so... Um, I believe the large companies that I really admire find a way to either embed within themselves small organizations that can move fast. And so in Walmart, that might be store aid or other mechanisms for giving the freedom for groups to have the independence and autonomy to, to create without a lot of structure and process. Or it might be um, surrounding themselves and investing in startups. So the gold standard there in my, view, my world is Johnson & Johnson. So Johnson & Johnson for 15, 20 years has supported and developed incubation programs, venture capital programs, mentorship programs that embed startups in their universe. And this is a way of tapping into those emerging market needs, of being able to move quickly without taking all the risk of doing that yourselves. Um, an easy way for big companies to do it, it doesn't require really any investment at all, is just encourage your people to mentor startups. Hmm. Encourage your senior executives just to be out there. Mentor a young, a young, ambitious, scrappy team trying to figure out an emerging market need where you've got some expertise to bring to bear on it. Either way, you know, if you are a mentor or an angel investor and you're engaged with the people who are absorbing the risk of understanding new market needs and developing new products and innovations, you'll bring that skill set, that expertise, that market access back into your role. That will keep your insights fresh. That will keep your customer facing heart uh, beating. Mm. And um, some companies encourage that and others don't. And I've never quite understood that latter orientation. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think what I've experienced, at least in my time at Walmart and in the UK, is that um, just telling people to um, be entrepreneurial in a corporate environment is not really doesn't really work right. because entrepreneurs think so differently. Uh, that would be, and I can relate to your point about having ten ideas and all of them look yeah. great. At, you know, <laughs> I'm cursed with that. But but one of the things that I try to help teach the people doing entrepreneurial type work is for it to work in a corporate environment. The one difference is you really do need to think about how are you going to measure success because you're not going to get away from capital allocation decisions right. on should we back this idea or not. And if you've not thought about that, um, then, then you won't 
be successful. And a lot of uh, entrepreneurs don't put a ton of time on the measurement elements, the KPIs they're really after. They're just trying to get a product up and right. get people to like it and you know get traction. And so that idea of, of making sure you can do create, a, even if that measurement doesn't exist yet, um, you have to go and figure that out and, and have that as part of the repertoire. Yes, I think so. And also being aware of your organization's appetite for uh, risk is essential. So if you are a person of one or a founding team of two out on your own, you can absorb as much or as little risk as you want in pursuing an untested idea. Inside a large company, there are there are sometimes good reasons to be risk averse. So take healthcare yeah. systems, yeah. for example. Healthcare systems can't afford to exist uh, in a world that's full of risk. Their, their world is full of risk, patient risk. And so they are designed to minimize that. And in some ways that just hinders entrepreneurialism within the organization. And I say to people sometimes, they don't like hearing this, but that's actually okay. It's not the job of a hospital to be entrepreneurial. Um, a hospital might be able to support entrepreneurial behavior by opening up certain mechanisms, like for example, opening their doors to entrepreneurial teams or innovators who need access to the physicians and the patients who experience problems and want to innovate on the outside. But understanding when you're inside a company or organization, whether and why or why not there is this acceptance of risk will help you frame the ask if you have an ask and know whether it's even appropriate to broach in the first place. Oh, that's really helpful to understand that. And I, I guess one of the things I struggle with is uh, people have uh, uh, an idea of what it is to be an entrepreneur. And I think it's a romantic idea <laughs> than, than, than a pragmatic yeah. <laughs> idea. Um, what are some of the myths about being an entrepreneur that um, you, you kind of come across and chuckle at or would love to educate people about what does it really mean. Yes. Do you know who you should ask this question to is Phil Libin. Have you spoken to Phil? No, I haven't yet. Okay. So Phil, for those of you who are listening, you may not know Phil. He is the founder of Evernote and he oh. has moved to Bentonville and um, he has a whole suite of companies and um you know, projects that he's working on that are all in this space of remote work and the distributed mm. workforce. Really fascinating. His one of his companies called Mm-hmm. Oh yes. Mm -hmm. I've and it's seen a, that. a video platform uh, that's really designed to facilitate collaboration and joy in the workplace when you have um, employees on a team spread all over. It, at any rate, he gave a talk at an event that we held in April. It was the Heartland Challenge. It was a graduate student startup competition. And we had graduate student startup teams from all over the world in this competition. And he was one of our keynote speakers. And we'd asked him to really inspire everybody with the power, the beauty, and the spirit of entrepreneurship. And he, he had, I think, 45 minutes to speak. And he spent 40 of them telling you why you shouldn't be an entrepreneur. You've got <laughs> to be kidding reasons. me. No. And it was, oh, it was one of the best, if not the best, talks on this subject I've ever seen. At the end, he brought it home, um, and I'll tell you how he yeah. brought it home, but I'll give you a couple of examples of, of myths. So, yes, you think you're going to be your own boss, and this is such an appealing thing. It's like, oh, right. gosh, I can live on my own schedule. I can move to Hawaii, whatever I can do. Right. And the fact is, the more successful you become as an entrepreneur, the more bosses you accrue. So <laughs> in the beginning, all your customers are your boss for That's sure. Right. Um, your investors are absolutely yep. your boss. Your team is your boss. It's yep. a, in, in a startup environment, you don't have the same incentives to give employees that you might yep. if you're a corporate executive. 
So at the end of the day, you are the only one who is not the boss. <laughs> so that's one example. The other that's is, great. yeah, yeah, you know, you're going to get rich. And there are plenty of statistics around um, how many startups fail, but how slow the path to yep. wealth accrual is. Um, and he went through a variety of other things. And at the end, what he said was, look, you know, I've just explained to all of you why you absolutely should not do this. <laughs> you should not launch these companies. Um, but if you cannot imagine any other way to go, if the problem you care about solving is so important to you, you cannot give up. And I can't convince you to not do it. You might as well go big. Yeah, I love that. You might as well think how many people can I solve this for? How big can my mm. vision be? Because when you go big, you can surround yourself with better investors, with better co-founders, with better employees, um, because your vision really matters. And so was so he it was really all about driving home to the vision. Was he basically saying, first find a problem worth solving that you're really passionate about, then think about should I do it as an entrepreneur or not? Yes. That's versus starting, I want to be an entrepreneur just to be an entrepreneur. 100%. And he was also saying, don't be wedded to your, you know, your, your business idea. Don't yeah. be wedded to your product idea. Be wedded to the problem. And I, I, I just deeply, passionately believe that that is what drives entrepreneurship. All the successful entrepreneurs I know yeah. were wedded to the problem. And we have a workshop, in fact, it's called Start With the Problem, that we, we give any time that we can because um, the vast majority of, of new businesses fail because they build something for, uh, you know, they build something nobody wants or for a market need that's not really strong. Yeah. Um, and they don't adapt because they the, the founders love the product so much. Um, but if you love the problem... Fall then, in love yeah. with the problem more yeah. than the product. Exactly. I love that, that advice. That was his message, yeah. Uh, as a quick aside, I saw uh, Matt Waller had done uh, a LinkedIn post and add mm -hmm, on there was a video <laughs> thing and I hadn't seen it before. So I clicked on it to go and looked at the sales page. And it, there was nothing more funny than watching this explainer video of this uh, woman explaining the platform. And every time the brand name came up, she said, mm -hmm. uh, it's great. It's just so lovely that you can't it, not smile. You, you smile, <laughs> smiled all the way yeah. through it because she says it, you know, mm -hmm, yep. every all the time. And it's <laughs> yeah. just really fun. So I hope that does well. It's it's and I think probably having fun is a bit of his spirit too, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. You've got to have fun doing this work. People that have a burning problem they want to solve, and they're maybe just coming out of college, uh, when's the right time to start the entrepreneurial journey? Because it, is it better to get five or 10 years of experience at a, another startup or a company? Uh, can you be prepared to be successful right out of college into an entrepreneurship program? I get that question a lot, and there there is data around it. There have been studies that have been done. I've, I've read a lot of these studies. I follow the literature in this space. And um, there's some evidence that if you start a company later in life, so at the time of life that I'm at, 45, um, mid-career, um, you have a higher chance of success. And I think that some of the reasons for that are that you, at that point, have work experience behind you. You may have a deeper access to industry needs because you've worked in the private sector. Maybe you're more um, structured in your time and you, I, who knows? Mm -hmm. There are reasons for that. <clears throat> but my answer to the question is always, you know, there's never, just like Phil said, there's never a good time to start a business. It's always full of risk. It's always fraught with challenges. Uh, but there's also never a bad time. And there are ways to be engaged in the entrepreneurial life without taking a huge leap and leaving your full-time job or, you know, 
turning your back on the other opportunities available to you. So if you have a curiosity about it, my advice is jump in now. Uh, jump in while you're a student, start a small business, experiment with what works for you. Um, take an internship or a job inside a startup, yeah. learn what that, what that life is like. We have a program for undergraduates called the Venture Internship Program, and it's, it sounds simple, and honestly, it is simple. It is a grant-funded program that allows us to pay for the students to work in a startup. Normally, they don't have those opportunities because most brand-new startups can't afford to hire interns or That's even right. take the time to navigate the HR process to oh, find yeah. them. So it wouldn't happen if we weren't orchestrating it, but what we orchestrate is we just put them together. And we have a little bit of coaching and training, and we do some workshops, and the supervisors and the students come to those. But for the most part, it is the supervisor inside a company that may just have one or two employees um, is so happy to have the talent, and the student gets this experience. It's almost like being a co-founder. I get to wear all the hats. I get to be in the strategy discussions. I might help invent a new product. I'm doing something really important because they don't have anybody else to do it. Um, there is no better way to learn than becoming involved. And so that will show you if you're a student, if, if you're as an undergraduate or fresh out of college, whether that is the right lifestyle for you. You'll learn a lot about that. Um, and it will also surround you with a community of people who have lived the entrepreneurial life and have had failures behind them and can yeah. give you advice and coaching. And Northwest Arkansas has such a rich, interconnected, energetic, entrepreneurial community. Just be part of it. You don't have to yeah. be a founder to be part of that community. So my advice is don't wait. Don't Do wait. Now. I love it. Um, I didn't start my journey in entrepreneurship until I was 35, but I had 10 years of Procter & Gamble and big yeah. company. And for me personally, it was it was helpful yeah. to, to have that experience, but also then a bit more terrifying because there was more at risk and yes. you, you're making big decisions. So like you said, there's probably going to be terror, terror involved at any stage. Terror involved in. at any stage. But the, when you develop the confidence to do it, yeah. it's so empowering. Oh, I mean, it's nothing you know, like it. Yeah, so for me, I... I started my career, as I, yeah. as I said before, in science communications, and I was a journalist. So I was working for newspapers, but this was 21 years ago, yeah. and the internet was new, and I was very new into my career post-grad school when the science sections mm. of the newspapers were just killed left and right, so the market yeah. was flooded with science journalists and no, no jobs, and so I had to start a consultancy oh. when I was 25, 26, because I couldn't find a job. Yep. And I didn't have any business skills. I had to learn as I went. But when I realized that, oh my gosh, I could I could make a great living, yeah. and the, if I could learn new skills, like learn how to communicate through digital mechanisms, learn mm -hmm. how to do podcasts and yeah. audio slideshows were a big thing at the time, code websites, all yeah. of that. Then I had a skill set that helped organizations solve problems, and I built a business out of that. And that. If I hadn't lost my job when I was yeah. 25 and had to do that, I think my career would have been very different and less yeah. exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, great story, great journey that you've been on to do that. And I'm so cool. It's so cool that you're in this market, doing this work, something that you're very skilled at. You bring a tremendous amount of knowledge. Where do you? And, and if you look back, I, I came here in '91, and there was no entrepreneurial culture, yeah. and it was very different. And I just, uh, in the last five years, it seems like a lot has changed, but. You're really plugged into what's happening in Northwest Arkansas. Where do you think it's going to go in the next three to four years? I mean, what's happening in this space? Uh, it, it is so fast moving. I don't know if anyone yeah. could really capture it. it I think um, we are very fast on our way to 
being nationally known as an entrepreneurial destination in Mecca. And if you had, if anybody had said that five years ago, you would have been laughed yeah. out of the room, even though we had pockets of real strength at that time and even 10 years ago. Um, because there has been, there's a snowball effect happening. And it's not an accident. There are a lot of people here who have been working to build this for a long time. And there have been major investments made with Dean Waller and the mm -hmm. Walton College, the Walton Family Foundation, the Northwest Arkansas Council, Startup Junkie. Lots of organizations have been really, really doing the hard, gritty work of building this ecosystem. But something has caught up. And I, from yeah. my perspective, it happened during COVID. Yeah. So the COVID year, I almost hate to say this because it was such a terrible year yeah. for all the obvious reasons, and it it um, it had a terrible impact on the business community. However, um, it also had an incredible galvanizing impact on the entrepreneurial community. Yeah. Both the ecosystem of support organizations, we started getting together every week. We had task forces to help small businesses stay afloat, stay alive. Students all of a sudden couldn't go to campus, were lacking in community, and a, a feeling of purposelessness was pervasive in the student community. And so they were flocking to us because we created these little groups, innovation yeah. scholars, and entrepreneurial communities that all lived virtually. But all of a sudden, we, could, we had the time of students that were hard to get before. So PhD students that normally were in the lab all the time couldn't get into their labs. They were looking for something to do. So everywhere I looked, and even though, yeah, I was sitting in my bedroom at my desk <laughs> all day long, I felt so engaged and connected into this community that year, the year and a half that we were working in yeah. that way. And when we came back, it didn't go away. It just kept snowballing. So um, metrics-wise, there were a larger number of companies formed in that year yeah. than the past five years combined, but also, um, Ecosystem-wise, it was almost like uh, you know um, a rainforest effect where it had mm. been, you know, just a tiny little plot of land, and all of a sudden it was, you know, new communities of innovation around femtech and medtech and data analytics, and even there was like this little cluster of entrepreneurs working in civil engineering that started getting together. It was just a blossoming. Um, and so I think, you know, you're, you share with me your questions, yeah. and I wonder the questions you were going to ask me, and you probably may be yeah, still no, get, getting to it, is around, um, you know, we might be entering into a recession. Uh, you know, yesterday, just, you know, if we hit that sort of bear market metric, and it's a, um, it's a scary time for our nation's economy. But startups, in a way, are immune to recessions. Uh, if you look at the data, actually, um, their effect on net job creation is stable, no yeah. matter whether we're in a recession or not. And in our region, because we have such a, such a strong um, financing and entrepreneurial support ecosystem, I anticipate that the recession will really make our entrepreneurial community skyrocket. You know, I think so too, unless you're in a late stage uh, funding rounds where that might be a challenge, but early seed yeah. stage, angel yes. stage, it seemed to be immune at this point. Yes. Um, I'd love to go back to the, um, what's happening in the, in, the, in, the, in the community, because you look at, we may be getting a tailwind if you follow what's happened in Miami, Yeah. you follow what's happened in Austin, uh, this, these centers are really emerging. I mean, Miami is incredible of how much talent they're pulling into Miami from Silicon Valley uh, for many different reasons. 
but it takes a partnership with the university environment plus the community government all working together and it sounds yes. like those things are happening here oh no question and do you think we can be a miami uh, in in a way Yes, I, no question. I, I always I always resist a little bit comparing ourselves to other yeah. markets because we're so unique. Yeah. No one else has Fortune One. No one else has the Ozarks. No one else. We're just we're a unique bird, and we're going to be a unique entrepreneurial ecosystem. But in terms of scale and visibility and the magnet effect for talent from other regions, yes, we have the opportunity to be in Austin and Miami. Um, one little microcosm of that would be we have this network. It's called the ESO Monthly. It's a boring name, but it's a <laughs> network of entrepreneurship support organizations. And we started it um, probably four years ago. And we held this meeting in this room. And it was literally just like me and Jeff Amarine, the CEO of Startup Junkie, and um, Jordan Carlisle. And you know, that was it, maybe one or two other people. And we held it every month for the purposes of collaborating and trying to build our mm -hmm. entrepreneurial community. Um, we kept going and it was a trickle of people. It was five or five to 10 people maybe by the 2020. And then when COVID hit, this, this meeting became a weekly meeting and more people started being attracted to it. It became a statewide network. And now we regularly in this monthly meeting, and it is all people who exist to support entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial growth in this state. Um, it's a network of 75 people from across the state. Typically, at least 60 people are on the call. We have this call tomorrow morning if you want to wow. hop on. Uh, we always kick it off by hearing from a local entrepreneur. We have, we have now an ESO summit that we have every year. We have venture capital groups from the coasts come and share with us how they want to be plugged into Arkansas. They see what's happening here. They want to come here. They want to start angel funds here. Um, and this, it really has felt like this this inflection point hit wow. overnight, but it is very palpable in those meetings. The scale and the gravity, the center of gravity that we now have that attracts people from other markets here. What you've said that's really shocked me in this, in this discussion is that uh, my impression has been that the entrepreneur activity in this market is around retailing and logistics. Uh, because of the, the mm -hmm, larger, mm -hmm. many of the reasons, And right? there's a lot there, yeah. But, but you said so many other areas that would never have crossed my mind that we were starting to incubate real entrepreneurship in, in a wide range of disciplines. Yes, oh, so many How do you other explain areas. that? It, it, comes, it typically comes from a passionate person. You know, so in the case of MedTech, for example, we have phenomenal healthcare uh, institutions in our state. But there have been a handful of people who have made a very deep investment in building a life science innovation um, ecosystem here. And so Barry Brady, who's the chief operating officer of Arkansas Children's Research Institute, just one of many, you know, uh, analogously sized organizations, he said, I am going to create the most innovative pediatric uh, environment in the country and he lobbied for the money he got investment he surrounded himself with um, the best expertise in the state for building internal um, culture builders incubation programs technology transfer systems um, he has a pediatric innovation summit that's happening this Friday um, he has built a cluster of pediatric innovation and we now can I could name 15 products 
a dozen or so companies that have spun out of that in the last two years. Jeff Stinson, who's the founder of Health Tech Arkansas, is another big player in that space. He and I have been working to create a biodesign program, which is modeled after a program at Stanford of the same name that engages engineers mm -hmm. and entrepreneurs mm -hmm. and yep. clinicians together. And for all of us, it is you know a handful of people who passionately care about problems in healthcare and want to be a place that solves them. And I would say the same thing in, in femtech. So there's um, a woman named April Roy, who's the founder of a great company called Fempac. Um, she and a handful of other women founders who are working in this space to solve women's healthcare issues have galvanized a movement and attracted investors and grant funders. And yeah. um, she's, I think, pitching. When is Walmart's open call? Is that a uh, couple, couple weeks. Of, yeah, couple She's weeks pitching at that in a couple of weeks. Nice. Yeah, it's incredible. But for this to be known as a place where those types of businesses can succeed is exciting. And honestly, it's a, it's a handful of people getting together and making it happen. How do you, uh, how would you suggest someone that's hearing this that has real passion uh, get plugged in? Because the traffic control required <laughs> to pull this together is immense. There's so many opportunities and doors to enter. Is there a traffic control function that's, yeah. that allows these connections to happen? Yeah, we talk about this a lot inside this ESO network because there's no, um, unfortunately, you know, it would be really hard to create a map. Yeah. A, it's not linear. There's no right. linear like you. Here's where you enter the maze, and here's where you exit the maze as a successful founder. It doesn't work that way. Um, but the good news is we are all connected to each other. So if you hit any one of us, we can uh, we can talk to you and help you yeah. find the opportunity that's right for you. So if you're a student, it's definitely OEI. I think we are. We don't control all of the programs. We don't run all of the programs that are relevant for student entrepreneurs. But we know about pretty much all of them, and so we can guide you coach you we have mentors we have experiential programs we have internships we have fellowships we have degree for oh, all the things um, but if you're not a student at the U of A or a faculty member at the U of A um, you know Startup Junkie is a great place to start the Arkansas Small Business and Technology Development Center is a great place to start but I think the best place to start is showing up for an event and just meeting people yeah just meet just, people. Just get in the groove. Except for you know, pitch competition. There's yeah. a great event called One Million Cups in Bentonville that happens every month. You have coffee. You hear from an entrepreneur. Just plug in, meet people. Yeah. That's the best way to start. I really think, and I'm thinking about the vision and strategy work at Walton College. And somehow this four-year process to get to this point is informed by people that are also shaping what's happening mm -hmm. in Northwest Arkansas. Mm -hmm. And it's that, it's like the U of A, this isn't come to you from grassroots only, uh, things are just evolving in the market and you just happen to catch it from the bottom. I mean, this is a, uh, how do we communicate the, without it sounding like this, mm -hmm. you know, the movers and shakers have decided that this right. is what we're gonna do, right? right? And it's important. And so, but there's been real intentionality between what Stuart, you know, the Walton yes. family and others endeavor yes um that have but the u of a is right there in, yep. a, in a big role versus kind of following along and picking up what's happening yeah yes it is right there and I, you know universities don't exist or they shouldn't exist in a, in a vacuum they're um, embedded in communities and are important economic drivers in the communities so we have an obligation as a university to be in touch with the needs and the opportunities to build the economy and the jobs of the future in Northwest Arkansas, but also our students and faculty are better off for that engagement. 
because when we have industry input into the design of a new program like the Masters of Science in Product Innovation, when we have startups who are hiring our students, um, they will be better equipped for the workforce that they are entering. And faculty, too, when their research is directed at the emerging needs that industry has, they are more likely to get funding for their research, and their research is more likely to be commercialized and actually enter the market and have an impact than if they were siloed in a, an academic department with access to only their academic peers. And, and for better or for worse, some universities work that way, but more and more the U of A is um, a porous organization that is embedded within and you know can't be disconnected from its community. Um, the program that you've described for the Master of Science in Product Innovation sounds over-equipped for the current environment as is. And what I mean by that is this really feels like you've built something that I don't want to say is future-proof because nothing really is future-proof, but, but this is a three to five year build out that is is really kind of equipped to take this region to the next level than just serve the current needs of what's happening today. It, thank you for saying that. It is intended to be, and it's intended to be agile in itself in design. In the in the case that the the coursework that is the required coursework that will include things like product design and customer research and mm -hmm. product innovation, you know that's set and established and taught by experts, but half of the students' experience is this practicum. And new practicums can come into the mix at any time. There are frameworks around how intensive they need to be and what, what students need to experience. They need to be part of a team, has to be interdisciplinary, et cetera. But let's say an emerging need in our ecosystem, which I anticipate mm -hmm. this, would be for students to be engaged in the development of advanced mobility projects and innovations. We can design a practicum around that and launch it without going through a big, long approval process because the MSPI is a container Got it. for new types of practicum experience. So I would anticipate over the next five years, we'll, we'll give birth to 10 or 15 new practicums based on the needs as they emerge. Got it. That, that's really smart. Was that some, Did that come from some of the benchmarking at Stanford and other places that are that have really created great partnerships with their community in the entrepreneurial space? When we look at other universities that have strong entrepreneurial outcomes, yes, they're always embedded in their ecosystems, but I mean, make no mistake, this is a unique program of our own design. I don't know of anything that exists that's quite like it. If you cast your eye, eye forward into the future, um, We'd love to see how many patents come out of this. Oh, yes. You know, right? I mean, oh, some yes. new metrics we typically don't look at as much, right? Is that is that on your mind? I look at those metrics all the time, <laughs> actually. And yeah, it is on my mind. And the, the U of A has, and I take no credit for this. This is my colleague, David Hinton, at the Office of Technology Ventures. Uh, it's made a very ambitious attempt to um, drive invention disclosures, drive patents, and drive the usefulness of our patents over time. And we know, without a shadow of a doubt, that the more deeply our research is informed and our product development is informed by the needs of industry, the more likely we are to have patents that are actually licensed, that actually go somewhere. So the design of this program is absolutely intended to, to um, do that. Boy, thank you for your time. This has been rich and really excited for the entrepreneur community that you're here leading this. Um, and congratulations on getting this going. Thank you so much. It, it takes a village. I, this has been a wonderful conversation. And I, again, really appreciate what you're doing and the voice that you're bringing to the leadership dialogue.
I really enjoyed my conversation with Sarah. My favorite part was the advice she shared around falling in love with a problem you feel passionate about solving. And if becoming an entrepreneur is the best way to solve that problem, then go for it, regardless of where you are in your career journey. Sarah's passion for sharing her wisdom and experience in this space is really contagious. So a big thank you, Sarah, for your time and investment into the startup community. That's it for this episode of It's a Customer's World. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends, and I'd be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's a Customer's World podcast is a product of the University of Arkansas's Customer-Centric Leadership Initiative and a Walton College original production. 